welcome. Um, <clears throat> I thought for a moment he'd said he's looking forward to John ticking you off, but I think it was kicking you off or <laughs> kicking off or something. Um, but yeah, it's, it's really great to be here. Thank you for coming along. We've got to say thank you after this morning's uh, service. Thank you to everyone who's here and everyone who's looking after us in so many different ways. Um, <clears throat> Yeah, it's just good. <laughs> I was reminded while I was uh, sitting there how, what I was going to say to you. And uh, I was reminded of a pastor I met, an American pastor I met when I was in Romania. And uh, his greeting to me was, um, John, it's a real privilege for you to meet me. <laughs> which, uh, which was true. Uh, but it's, uh, yeah, it's, it made me think for a moment. But he was a lovely, lovely guy and a great man of God. Um, Christmas, isn't it exciting? <laughs> okay, I well, hope you're looking forward to it a little bit. I- I'm going to be a shepherd this Christmas. Isn't that wonderful? I'm going to grow my beard long and white, I hope, um, and have great fun out on the park or wherever we're going. <clears throat> um, looking forward to that. And can I encourage you too about the um, next Saturday when we go on the streets on the treasure hunt. It's just such fun. When you say to someone, I'm on a treasure hunt, they look puzzled. And then you say to them, you're the treasure. And then their face lights up a bit and they think, well, what's this? Have I won a prize or something? (laughs) And then you say, no, God thinks you're an amazing treasure to him. You're so precious. And their faces just light up and they listen. It's wonderful. So I look forward to seeing you all there on Saturday. Um, Do you know the four stages of life? This is for Christmas. Stage one, I believe in Santa Claus. Stage two, I don't believe in Santa Claus. Stage three, I am Santa Claus. And stage four, I look like Santa Claus. (laughs) Um, I say that because we're looking at one John, and John was an old man when he wrote this letter. Um, He was probably in, it could well be into his 90s, it was certainly 55 to 60 years after uh, Jesus' death. So it's a long time uh, since he last had contact with Jesus on earth. And uh, and John was probably based in Ephesus and uh, with uh, Jesus' mother, who he was looking after, she was probably there too. Um, And you need to remember too that this is the John who's called, you know, James and John, the sons of Zebedee. This is the John who wanted to call down thunder on the Samaritan village. Uh, And yet this book is so full of God's love and this wonderful pastoral heart. And when we look at it, I hope you'll see through it how, how God has transformed this man who is so arrogant and who wanted the first place in the kingdom of God and yeah, and who wanted to shut someone up who was talking about, about the gospel and doing, talking about Jesus. So that was John. Let's, let's look, I'll look a bit more later in, uh, after we've read it. I'm going to read the first chapter and then I've got few thoughts to share with you. Uh, John chapter 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. Notice the we. It's not a royal we, but it's, it's John saying, this is me and all the other apostles who are all now dead. In fact, he was the last remaining apostle uh, alive. Uh, but he's saying, we, 
it's not just me that's telling you this. This has been the experience of all the apostles. He says, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testify to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for John, who spent three years with Jesus and who has had so many memories of him, even into his old age, and had still had a passion for Jesus and a passion to proclaim the good news of Jesus. And we pray, Father, that as we go through this book, um, that yeah, that your Holy Spirit would just impart to us some of the heart of John into our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know whether any of you have read any of Barbara Johnson. No? She's a, an American author. She writes books for ladies, really, to encourage ladies, but I love reading them. <laughs> and she's written one along, maybe she's a bit old now, because a, a book I got was a long time ago. It was called Stick a Geranium in Your Hat and Be Happy. And uh, <clears throat> she gives lots of illustrations, and I want to read one to you. A man asked to fill out his insurance form explaining the many injuries he was making a claim for. And he wrote the following. I may burst out laughing in this because sometimes I lose control of myself when I'm, uh, when I'm reading it. I'm writing following your request concerning block number one on the insurance form, which asks for the cause of the injuries, wherein I put trying to do the job alone. You said you needed more information, so I trust the following will be sufficient. I am a bricklayer by trade. And on the day of the injuries, I was working alone, laying brick around the top of a four-story building, when I realized that I had about 500 pounds of bricks left over. That's pounds in weight for those of you who are gone metric. Uh, 500 pounds of bricks left over. Rather than carry them down by hand, I decided to put them in a barrel and lower them by pulley, which was fastened to the top of the building. I secured the end of the rope at ground level, went up to the top of the building and loaded the bricks into the barrel and flung the barrel out with the bricks in it. Then I went down and untied the rope, holding securely to ensure the slow descent of the barrel. As you will note in block six of the insurance form, I weigh 150 pounds. <laughs> Due to the shock of being jerked off the ground so quickly, I lost my presence of mind and forgot to let go of the rope. 
<laughs> Between the second and third floors, I met the barrel coming down. <laughs> this accounts for the bruises and lacerations to my upper body. Regaining my presence of mind again, I held on tightly to the rope and proceeded rapidly up the side of the building, <laughs> not stopping until my right hand jammed in the pulley. This accounts for my broken thumb. Despite the pain, I retained my presence of mind and held tightly onto the rope. At approximately the same time, the barrel of bricks hit the ground and the bottom fell out of the barrel. Devoid of the weight of the bricks, the barrel now weighed about 50 pounds. <laughs> I refer you again to block number six in my weight, and as you could guess, I began a rapid descent. In the vicinity of the second floor, I met the barrel coming up. This explains the injuries to my legs and lower body. Slowed only slightly, I continued my descent, landing on the pile of bricks. Fortunately, my back was only sprained and the internal injuries were minimal. I'm sorry to report, however, that at this point, I again lost my presence of mind and let go of the rope. As you can imagine, the empty barrel crashed down on me. I trust this answers your concern. Please know, please know that I am finished with trying to do the job alone. That's my text, if you want. I am finished with trying to do the job alone. Are you finished with trying to do God's work alone? We're going to look at a number of points that just God spoke to me about. Firstly, the purpose of the incarnation. The whole point of the incarnation was that God has done this amazing thing of coming into this world, of sacrificing his own dear son. Why? To be with us, to be in us by his spirit, to help us to succeed. God wants you and I to succeed as Christians in every way. Remember when I started training at Theological College in Cambridge, I can say I studied in Cambridge, although I didn't get a Cambridge degree, I studied in our theological college. But the first day there, the principal came along and he said, now, this is going to be a really tough time. He said, we're going to try and get you fluent in Hebrew and Greek, or up to O-level standard in Hebrew and Greek in three weeks. And then there'll be an awful lot of other stuff, so it's going to be really tough. Um, and then he said, but don't worry, my job is to make sure you get through, and you will. And Jesus came as a man so that you and I can get through. John writes to help a church, and it's a church that's threatened by a heresy, Gnosticism. It's, um, it's where matter, including flesh, is seen to be evil, only the spirit is good. And that led to two things. It led, on one hand, to asceticism, which was just a severe discipline of the body. You, didn't, you fasted and you like a monk in a monastery, perhaps. Um, <clears throat> you didn't, yeah. And licentiousness, where you did what you like with your body because the body is not, is, is, doesn't matter. And uh, John points first to the reality of Jesus' body. He had three years of close companionship with Jesus. And he says that which was from the beginning, that Jesus had an eternal existence, perhaps. Uh, the context is the disciples' witness. This we proclaim, uh, part of the gospel message. And, um, 
Uh, and I think it's in that context that, that John is saying um, that which was from the beginning. From the beginning, from the first time we met Jesus, this is what happened. This is what we did. We saw. This we proclaim. We saw. 35 miracles are, are mentioned in the New Testament, but John says at the end of his gospel, and remember this is the same John who wrote the gospel of John. If you compare the two, the language is very similar, and he also wrote those, uh, John 2 and John 3 and the book of Revelation. Uh, these are the last writings, these letters. Um, but 35 miracles and lots more, you know, uh, more than all the books in the world could contain is what John says at the end of his gospel. And I think that's true. It may seem perhaps impossible. But think of the number of books that probably have been written about the miracles of Jesus since then. It's a lot of books. And then he says, we heard. They heard the Sermon on the Mount. They heard all the teaching of Jesus, the countless parables. They heard from him. And he spent a lot of time with them around the Last Supper, all that wonderful teaching in John 14, 15, 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. He said, we looked at him. It's a, an examination. We touched him. Maybe that's looking to, it reminds us of, of Thomas when Jesus after the resurrection says, look, touch me. When John himself, leaning on Jesus at the Last Supper, touching him saying Jesus was real flesh and blood. He was tired and needed to sleep at the bottom of a boat one moment and the next he's standing up and commanding a miracle and calming a storm. God in human flesh helping his disciples. So why is this important? Well, Gnosticism is a heresy because Jesus, they say, they were saying Jesus the man died on the cross. The Christ spirit came upon him in his baptism and left before Jesus died. So really what they're saying, there's no salvation. We can't have a do-it-yourself salvation. You can't save yourself. We know that. 1 John 4, 2 says, every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And you see, in no other way could atonement be made for our sins. The Redeemer must be human in order to identify with man's sinfulness and pay the price of our sin. But he must also be divine in order to be sinless and thus able to bear the sin of the world. So that's the importance of incarnation and Jesus being coming in the flesh. John Piper says something interesting. <clears throat> he says, I don't think it is so much the mystery of a divine and human nature in one person that causes most people to stumble over the doctrine of the incarnation. The stumbling block is that if the doctrine is true, every single person in the world must obey this one particular Jewish man. Everything he says is law. Everything he did is perfect. And then he says, and the peculiar peculiarity of his work and word flew out into history in the form of a particular inspired book that claims a universal authority over every other book that has ever been written. And we know that book as the Bible. And then he goes on to say, the stumbling block of the incarnation, when God becomes a man, he strips away every pretense of man to be God. We want to be God. That's Adam and Eve in the garden. They wanted to be like God. 
we can no longer do our own thing. We must do what this one Jewish man wants us to do. We can no longer pose as self-sufficient because this one Jewish man says we are all sick with sin and must come to him for healing. We can no longer depend on our own wisdom to find life because this one Jewish man who lived for 30 obscure years in a little country in the Middle East says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And if you don't know salvation tonight and you're here, that's the way to life in Jesus. So the question I ask is, have you committed your life to obedience to this Jesus? Because if not, then you're trying to do it on your own. Have you committed to obey this man, Jesus? I struggle with obedience. I have to say that. I don't know if you remember, but three years ago, David preached a sermon. Uh, we were in the, maybe it was four years ago, we were in the theater over in Gosforth. And at the end of the sermon, he said, what I want you to do is tomorrow morning, when you speak to God, ask him what he wants you to do that day. And foolishly or wisely, I don't know, I did it. And you'll remember, or do you remember what happened to me? Oh, well, I'll tell you. <laughs> um, I, I foolishly asked God, and God said, go to Asda, and uh, you'll meet a man there wearing a blue shirt. And uh, so I, uh, I thought about it and said, well, yes, okay. Uh, but I didn't go in the morning. I kept putting it off. I was busy doing stuff. And eventually in the afternoon, I got a prod from God and I went and uh, got to Asda. And there was no sign of a man in a blue shirt in the coffee shop. In fact, there's only a couple of old ladies. So I thought, I'll have a cup of coffee. And if he's not here by the time I finish the coffee, I shall, um, I shall go. I've got it wrong, obviously. So I got my cup of coffee. It was the hottest cup of coffee I've ever drunk. <laughs> I couldn't drink. It was so hot. Anyway, I waited and waited, and I was just getting near the bottom of the cup, and a man walked in with a plate of beans on toast and sat down at the table right opposite me with a blue shirt. So I thought, okay, I'll wait until he's finished his beans. <laughs> and, uh, and then I went over to him, and I, I explained what, what was going on. And... I had a lovely conversation with him and I talked about Jesus. Oh, he said, I've got two sisters and they're going on about Jesus all the time. And, and we had a great conversation about Jesus and I was able to pray with him. I felt God prodding me about his finances and I asked about that. He said, well, I have enough to get by. And there was obviously a question mark there. So I prayed into that and then he had to rush off because he got a call. But yeah, it was exciting. But I have to confess, there have been very few days after that that I've done that and asked God. And yet God hasn't stopped speaking to me. And I'm trying all the time to say, okay, I will listen to God and do it. Are you like that? Maybe you're not. Maybe you're all perfect. Are you, are you perfect yet? <laughs> you know, I said, okay, I will listen. And if God speaks, I will do it. So once I'd said that, I got an email the next day from Rebecca uh, who who asked me if I'd like to join a prophecy team at Vineyard Conference later this month. And I just said, no. That was just out to myself. I was saying, I, I, no, rather than yes. And uh, then I started to do my morning devotions. I used Scripture Union notes. I opened up the notes. And the scripture for that day was 1 Corinthians 14, which is the whole chapter where Paul teaches about prophecy. So that was a bit of a prod, but it was a week before I said yes. Why? Why do we do that? Do you do that? Well, please say yes. 
make me feel better. Um, have you seriously submitted to the authority of this inspired book over your life? Have you been real about the failure of your own self-sufficiency and the reality of your sin sickness as, uh, as we've been reading there? You see, we've got to give up trying to do it alone and thinking that we know better than God and believe that if he speaks to us, he's serious. And I, I long to be like that. And the second thing I want to say, that these are dangerous days for our nation, which is why we know about the incarnation. God is light, but there is so much darkness in our nation today. I turned the TV on one evening this week. It was a comedian at the Apollo, I think is where he was from. I don't know his name, I've never seen But he was talking about a program on television. I, don't know, I didn't know the name of the program. I've researched it. It's called Naked Attraction. Have you watched it? I've seen a little bit. Um, the comedian, apart from his liberal choice of words, made a fascinating attack on that program. Um, you know, he... He talked about how stupid these people must be to choose the love of their life based on that person's sexual organs. Basically, that's what the program's all about. And to do it in the front of the whole nation. And, and he made fun of it all. I mean, it was just... But I was asking myself, what is going on in our nation when we've got a program like that on television? And that's just the tip of the iceberg uh, 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 the iceberg of a nation that has rejected God. We are living in dark times and dangerous times. Read 1 John because he talks a lot about light and a lot about darkness, the kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of God. And, and there's no, it's black and white for John. There's no in-betweens. And so it is in our nation. It seems it's very dark and very black. I've been reading a book by Carl Truman. It's called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. It makes, he makes some fascinating observations about our nation. He speaks of three worlds or three cultures. He says one and two have a morality based on and justified by appeal to something transcendent beyond this material world, a god or something like that. He said, the first is a pagan world, pagan, but they do have moral codes rooted in something that's greater than themselves. So a person will ask, well, why should I obey this law? And the answer will be, well, the oracle of Delphi says so. There's an authority, a sacred authority out there somewhere, not in this world. He says, uh, number two world or culture is a world that is characterized not so much by fate, but by faith. And the obvious example is Christianity, a faith that shaped the cultures of the Western world in a deep way. Law codes were rooted in the will of God in the Bible. Concepts of justice and mercy shaped us uh, through the, uh, from the Bible. Witnesses still place their hands on a sacred text and swear to tell the truth. The number three worlds by stark contrast, do not root their cultures on the basis of something sacred or transcendent. They have to do so on the basis of themselves. It's self-centered. And it seems to me that's our culture today. It's self-centered. What would I like? What's good for me? What satisfies me? That's a very dangerous approach to take to society and culture. 
It's a dangerous thing because it's like the child being told to eat his vegetables and he's saying, why? And mum says, because I say so. And uh, it won't be too long before he grows up a bit further and he begins to, well, yes, he begins to question the validity of that hierarchy and the answer won't have the same weight anymore. And so it is in our culture. The sacred, God's law, the transcendent God who is there, holds very little weight in our culture today. That is dangerous. Truman says no culture has ever preserved itself where it's not a registration of sacred order. In other words, no culture survives that doesn't have a sacred, a God, a transcendent being out there. Abandon the sacred and your culture is left without a foundation. For example, contemporary sexual morality has become a matter of pragmatic considerations. Will this make me happy? How can I reduce the risks? Um, mutual consent moves to the center of discussions about what is and what isn't acceptable in sexual behavior. And this in turn places huge pressure on the most deeply rooted sexual taboos. And you watch television today and you see those taboos being paraded. And the question that um, <clears throat> Truman asks is, why should incest be forbidden if it's between consenting adults and there's no risk of conception? You see the dangerous place we're in as a nation if God is not there. This is our nation determined to try and do things alone. We've seen great is the darkness that covers the earth or the darkness covers our land. God has been challenging me about prayer for our church and for our nation. And so I said, yes, but I have to be honest, I've struggled and frustrated with my own prayer life. 9.30 p.m. in the evening, I get tired, I'm getting old. And so I turn the television on. And I've been speaking to God about prayer and he said to me, you could pray in the evenings a bit more. Turn the television on and God says, you could be talking to me now. What do I do? You know the little poem, procrastination is my art, it brings me naught but sorrow. I knew that I should stop it. In fact, I will tomorrow. <laughs> and that's what I said to God. Yeah, I'll start tomorrow. And I've said that for a few days. And I'm ashamed of that. And I want to do it. Is there any hope? Is there any hope? Yes, there is. John talks in, in John 1, his epistle, we have seen his glory, the glory is the only begotten son of the Father. He saw Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration and that made a big impact on him. He saw the, the glory of God, this bright, the light of God, and, and it touched him. And, and he never forgot that. And the words that came from, from, from God saying, this is my beloved son. John was there. He saw and he heard. We have seen his glory, the glory of the only begotten son. Awesome. But more awesome, I think, are the words of Paul when he says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's the Christmas hope that we proclaim. 
Christ can transform you and then use you as an instrument to transform others. That's the proclamation of John. We proclaim this, that there is life. The life is in Christ and the life comes into you. Christ in you, the hope of glory. The healings and the miracles, well, we see them occasionally. Can it be a regular occurrence? I've been reading a book, um, The Glory Zone in the War Zone. It's written by Andrew White, who was the bishop of, vicar of Baghdad, was his last book. Let me read what he says. What is the glory zone? He says, for me, it is the place, the domain of his manifest presence. It is the place where we experience the reality of heaven invading our world. That's the kingdom theology. The place where we are tangibly touched by heaven's realities. Transcendent peace, unspeakable joy, angels, visions, extreme light, divine provision, unusual manifestations that reveal an aspect of King Jesus, healings, resurrections, supernatural alignments, divine counsel, miracles, signs, and wonders. It is a, it is a zone that becomes increasingly defined, real, and tangible as we move in deep realms of faith, devotion and worship. There's that dependence in God. The glory zone is a zone far different from and superior to physically, physically earthed zones that are fixed, static, mapped and seen. It is an eternal, invisible, dynamic zone that moves with us. The great mystery of Christ within the hope of glory and the great mystery of being with him mean that each of us is designed to abide in this zone and to carry this zone as if it were a transportable tabernacle that can be set up in the darkest of places. Wow, isn't that awesome? Go on the streets on Saturday, treasure hunting, and you're a tabernacle that can be set up in the darkest place in Wall's End. And he goes on to say, my people and I experienced the tangible, concrete reality of the king's domain, the fullness of his presence that manifested itself in our midst and followed us just like a shadow. Even in the darkest of hours, we knew the reality of those on the road to Emmaus, the overwhelming awareness of him being in our presence and the assurance of being overshadowed by the full presence of the Godhead. It's unbelievable, we say. I can hear some of you say, ah, but that was in a war zone. But are we not in a war zone? Our nation's in a dangerous place. The enemy is at work. His strategy is not the same here as out in Baghdad. But he has a strategy, and it seems to be working for him. What are we doing about it? Don't you just long to see all that he's written about here in Life Vineyard and through Life Vineyard? Will you give up trying to do it alone? That's the challenge. Will you allow God's kingdom power to work in and through you beginning tonight? Who wants the book? Come and get it. It's free. It's worth reading. Don't come for a Christmas present for somebody else. This is for you. Come and get it. I'll Come on, take a step of faith and come and get it.
<laughs> Good, bless you. The rest of you will have to pay for it. <laughs> really expensive, but worth every penny. Uh, I could go on. I should stop, shouldn't I? <laughs> um, the second, the next thing, I mean, the hope of Christ in you, the hope of glory. The second thing is fellowship. We need each other. We need each other. We need to stop trying to do it alone. I love Christian fellowship. I had a great week of fellowship with people in coffee shops. I've eaten cake and scones and jam and cream and, and, and more cakes. And it was just wonderful. I and mean, that was just the cakes. Then there was the conversation. And, and I had a, a Zoom meeting with a couple of friends. And breakfast in Ikea. What was it all about? Well, we talked about draw near to God and he will draw near to you. How do you do that? We, and we shared our successes and our failures. We talked about sharing our faith and the place, where is there a place of warning in our proclamation of our faith? We talked about that for a while. And then we discussed how to boil an egg. <laughs> yeah, that was part of it too. Um, one of the guys had never, didn't know how to boil an egg. <laughs> and uh, he'd been married for, I don't know, well, he's an old man now in his 80s. He didn't know how to boil an egg. So we were explaining to him. <laughs> uh, and I, shame on me, but I think we prayed together, but I can't remember. Isn't that awful? I'm pretty sure we did. We usually do. But it was just so uplifting. We need each other. We need to encourage each other and help each other. That's part of the help that God has given us. He's given you the Holy Spirit within, but he's given you friends that you can have fellowship with. Our fellowship, he says, is with the Father and with his Son. Someone said that the object of fellowship is the occupation of Christ. Our first attention is to be focused on Christ, not on each other. We become occupied with Christ, and then suddenly we find we've got something for the person beside us. Like the spokes of a bicycle, the closer you get to the center, the nearer they get to each other. And so in our fellowship, the closer you get to Christ, the closer we get to each other. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. That's fellowship. In a meeting or on the street or at work, you can fellowship with Christ through the Holy Spirit. That's amazing. A privilege to have 24-7 access to the Father. No appointment necessary. That was better than John experienced in his three years with Jesus. Because there were times he couldn't get near Jesus. We have 24-7 access. Brilliant. And the object of our fellowship is to allow Christ to occupy more of our lives. We walk in the light as he is in the light, verse 7. We have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus purifies us from all sin. You know, when you go to the dentist and you sit down in the chair, the first thing he does is turn the light on and gets you to open your mouth to expose that rotten tooth. Light reveals the badness in us so it can be cleansed. That's good. I, had a phys I hated physics at school. I had a physics teacher who shone the light on my homework and he ha used to hand the homework out every day and he would make a comment on it before he threw the book and he could throw the book so it would just land on your desk in front of you. And I remember, I still remember it. He said, Paul, that's all wrong. <laughs> Apart from that, it's all right. You see, it's all right to have sin in your life if you're prepared to confess it. It's all right. God knows we're all sinful. 
anybody here who's not? God knows it. And God says, fellowship, light, confession brings blessing of growth and transformation. We desperately need each other for this so that we can be open and honest and real with each other because we'll never beat the sins in our lives on our own. We all sin. If we confess our sins, he is faithful. I mean, the Greek is actually, if we continually confess our sins, he is faithful and just continually and will cleanse us continually. He'll go on cleansing. It's a work of transformation. And then I hear you say, and me saying, I agree, that's good, but I'm very busy. I, we need to examine our lives. What, what are you feeding on in the moment? Is it the world or is it God? Are you going to you know, I remember going when I was a child going to visit relatives in the south of Ireland and we only did it twice a year so it was a whole day and we'd get there about lunchtime at my one aunt's house and she would give us an enormous enormous lunch enormous dinner you know and chicken and potatoes and all the rest and she always came around with a pot of potatoes and she would say would you like some more John and it's on your plate before you could say no and you felt you had to eat them and then after that we went to the next aunt's and uh, well, <laughs> immediately you're offered some more food. So you're sitting around the table again. And she made this delicious apple and blackberry pie with the most delicious pastry. And oh, it was a struggle to eat it, but yeah, you do. And then went on to my grandfather's and oh, couldn't face anything more. And you know, sometimes we fill our lives up with the stuff that stops us receiving the good things that God has for us. What are you feeding on? And all of that leads to us being joyful Christians. I'm going to stop there. Maybe the band can come up. I was taught as a child, Jesus and others and you, what a wonderful way to spell joy. Um, And that's true. It's Jesus first, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Then it's others, our ministry to others in fellowship. That's what it's all about. If you're not in a life group, get into a life group. Meet with others as often as possible and encourage one another. It's not about talking about everyday things all the time, but make Christ the center. Fellowship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and with each other. And the joy will be there. We have such a great time this week together with my friends. So, will you tell God tonight, I am finished with trying to do the job on my own? Let me pray. Father, thank you for the wonderful provision that you have made for us in Jesus and through Jesus. Thank you, Father. Thank you that you sent your Son into this world as a human being. Thank you that he came to live amongst us and now by his Spirit he dwells within us so that we can lean and depend upon him. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would just touch each one tonight with some of the things that well, just the things that are important that you think for their lives. May they hear those things and remember those things. And that we would all finish trying to do the job on our own. Lord, we want to rely upon you. In Jesus' name.
Amen.